Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is the true story of a popular college athlete named Steven. Steven was a basketball player, very handsome guy, big brawny guy. His landlord, Robert Reeves. Mr. Reeves liked to be called the bishop because he saw himself as a man of the cloth. And the two steamy affairs he's having at the same time. She did not think that he had other girlfriends. It's a tale of sex, religion, and ultimately, savage murder. Beware, extreme passion can lead to shocking consequences. It's September 2007, on the campus of North Carolina Central University. In an apartment nearby, a 22-year-old college student named Steven is waiting for a friend. Steven was a basketball player at uh, NCCU. Very handsome guy, a big brawny guy. He was from Baltimore, so he had that Baltimore swag about him. And I'm sure some of these young girls down here in the South uh, probably dug that. Steven is in his senior year and is determined to enjoy every last carefree moment. Of course, as a senior, he's been around, so he knows the lay of the land. Romantically, Stephen has made the most of his college years, bouncing from girl to girl. Stephen is a real hot commodity on campus. He dates around. He might be a little bit of a player, but he's also a gentleman. He's seen lots of different women, but there is one he keeps coming back to. Her name is Velma. Velma was a attractive, presented very well, very nice lady didn't necessarily consider themselves boyfriend and girlfriend in the traditional sense. They described it as friends with benefits. These two were just kind of like bosom buddies with a little extracurricular activity on the side. They knew not to take anything too seriously. They were in college and they were having a good time, and that's probably what attracted the two of them. 
Velma knows the relationship is casual, but she's unaware of the other women in Stephen's life. And that's not his only secret. At the start of the fall semester, Stephen is homeless. Stephen was not on a basketball scholarship, and financially he was having problems. Years of college tuition fees have completely wiped out Stephen's finances. He was broke. He was evicted from his apartment. He was living in his car, didn't know what he was going to do, and, and certainly needed a job. Stephen is desperately hoping for a change in his fortunes. And in October 2007, he finally catches a break. It comes in the form of 40-year-old preacher Robert Reeves. Reeves was in the ministry. He was a pastor. Robert Reeves is about 5'6". He's got dark hair. He's African-American, wears glasses. Given his religious background, Reeves insists Stephen call him by a preferred nickname. Mr. Reeves um, liked to be called the bishop because he saw himself as a man of the cloth. Stephen met the bishop earlier in the summer. The pair became fast friends after Stephen had confided in him about his money woes. Once Reeves learns that Stephen is on some hard times financially, he says, well, you know, I have a house. Why don't you come and live with me? Even better, Reeves says he can help Stephen find a part-time job to help make the $300 rent payments. Reeves said he knew of some way that he could make some money as a, an intern or a researcher of some kind. Stephen gratefully accepts the generous offer. And in early October, he settles into the basement bedroom of Reeves' stately Durham home. And with his financial issues seemingly resolved, he's free to enjoy college life once more. And later that fall, the handsome athlete arouses the interest of another classmate, 21-year-old Latrice Curtis. Latrice Curtis is a very attractive young lady, very personable, and her and Steven really hit it off. She was a go-getter. Uh, she was the type child that um, set her mind to something, and she's not going to quit until she accomplishes that. This friendship between Latrice and Stephen developed in the classroom through studying together, spending time socially together. And Stephen has even opened up to her about his recent troubles. In Latrice, he finds a confidant, somebody he can share his problems with. When you begin to share your personal feelings with somebody else of the opposite sex, it does create this great tension. Because of their growing friendship, Stephen has been honest with Latrice that he's not looking for anything serious romantically. I don't think he wanted to engage in any kind of relationship that would have any effect on his flexibility and his future plans. But Latrice doesn't care about that. She likes Stephen, and she wants to see more of him. Stephen may have other girls on the side, but Latrice really wanted to pursue this. She wanted to be the one that landed him. She's going to convert him from being a player. In late October, two weeks after moving in with the bishop, Stephen invites Latrice over for a study date. Now that he finally has his own place, 
Stephen plans to take full advantage of his newfound privacy to get intimate with Latrice. They were, you know, perhaps studying or just hanging out and talking, and then one thing led to another. Things build and build, and when you get to the right moment, the dam bursts. We feel like this is how we need to express ourselves to each other. It's the first time Stephen and Latrice have had sex with each other, and the new lovers give themselves over to the intense pleasure of being together. This wasn't just a random fling for her. Clearly, the sexual attraction was very profound. And mix that with a genuine friendship, a comfort level that she must have felt with him, one has to wonder, was she looking at Stephen in a new way? But for Stephen, the exciting afternoon he spent with Latrice hasn't changed anything from his perspective. While Stephen cares for Latrice, it certainly does not appear that Stephen is interested in a long-term, steady, monogamous relationship at that point. For the moment, he's just reveling in the freedom of his new living situation, forgetting how his actions might be perceived by one important person, his pious new housemate, the bishop. So after Stephen and Latrice have sex, she leaves, and then Stephen has a conversation with his landlord, the bishop. The bishop wants to know, you just have sex with that girl? The bishop saw Latrice go into Stephen's room and knows all too well what's been going on. In Stephen's mind, the bishop is concerned about my soul. He doesn't want me out here committing fornication. The bishop leaves the matter there, but it's given Stephen the distinct impression he's crossed a big line. Is it going to be difficult for him to bring home girlfriends when he's living with a man of the cloth? And how is he going to resolve any conflict if the bishop disapproves of his extracurricular activities? But it turns out Stephen isn't the only one sneaking around. His new lover, Latrice, has a shocking secret of her own. Despite pursuing Stephen, she is, in fact, married. Latrice Curtis told him she was separated from her husband, when, in fact, she was a newlywed. Latrice only exchanged vows with Darren a few months earlier. And to their families, the couple still seemed to be very much in love. Darren, most women would call him a catch. He was working part-time, taking classes at NC State, and he was in the National Guard Reserves as well. He just seemed to be the right one for it because he was a go-getter, and so was she. They seemed like they're just an ideal couple. And Darren would be furious if he knew about his wife's secret life. As far as Darren knows, his wife is in school, and she works part-time, and they are living a typical marriage. But will it stay that way? Another person completely in the dark about Stephen's new relationship with Latrice is Velma. Her idea of their relationship was that they were good friends and that they, from time to time, engaged in sexual intercourse. But she did not necessarily think that he had other girlfriends that he was having intercourse with. But popular ladies' man Stephen 
is blissfully unaware of the potential storm he's whipping up. In his eyes, by the end of the fall semester, everything in his life is falling into place. He has a roof over his head and is having exciting sexual relationships with two beautiful women, Patrice and Velma. Stephen is personally validated by the number of women that he could have sexual relations with. That's a huge ego boost. It all seems too good to be true. And unfortunately for Stephen, that's exactly the case. He can't imagine just how quickly his fortunes can change. One day in December, Stephen picks up an unexpected phone call. He doesn't recognize the voice on the other end of the line, but the sinister tone leaves no doubt as to the caller's intention. Stephen begins getting threatening phone calls, and it shows up on his cell phone as a blocked number. In one of those phone calls, there was a reference to they thought he'd needed a gun or he better have a gun because he would need it. Stephen hopes the eerie calls are a cruel teenage prank. But on December 11th, he learns they're far more serious. Stephen is over visiting Velma. When he leaves to go home, he discovers that his tires have been cut on his car. There are other cars in the driveway and other cars on the street, and nobody else's car has been tampered with. It's obvious that this is no accident. There's somebody stalking him. He's been picked out. Somebody's followed him. A dangerous game has been set in motion, but the rules will grow far more deadly, and the players are not who they seem. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Janice from Warner Brothers Discovery. Have you ever heard the expression, perfect is the enemy of good? I think about that a lot, especially when it comes to my body and health, because perfect does not exist. It's a total trap. Noom isn't into this perfection thing either. Its unique approach is tailored to each person's psychology and biology. From coaching to recipes, Noom's app provides personalized information to help you on your journey, no one else's journey. 
I also think it's great that Noom doesn't restrict what you can eat and it doesn't shame you for treating yourself. And treat yourself, you should. What's more, Noom's approach is grounded in science. They've even published more than 30 peer-reviewed scientific articles about how they work. To date, Noom has helped more than 5.2 million people lose weight by helping them build new habits for a healthier lifestyle. So why not give it a try? Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. In the late fall of 2007, everything seems to be going great for handsome 22-year-old college senior Stephen. He's sleeping with his good friend, an attractive beauty named Velma. And he started a passionate after-hours affair with another classmate, Latrice Curtis. It's this Hollywood stuff. Two pretty people, they meet, they hit it off. Clearly, there's a connection there. And after weeks of living out of his car, he finally has a roof over his head, thanks to his minister mentor, Robert Reeves, a man he calls the bishop. Mr. Reeves offered to provide a living um, quarters and also give him part-time employment so that he would be able to afford the rent. But when Stephen's tires are slashed, He's left wondering if someone has it out for him. Despite their earlier run-in over Latrice, Stephen and the bishop are still close. Now Stephen turns to his friend for help in dealing with a potential stalker. Mr. Reeves is a, a rock for Stephen to lean on during this tough time. But Reeves has some startling news of his own to report. He says some strange things have been happening at the house. Somebody's been ringing the doorbell and leaving. It's left the minister rattled. Robert Reeves was very scared at this point. And Stevens feeling partly responsible for the situation. Stevens' mind is like, man, I'm, I'm just a source of, of, of bad luck here. Everywhere I show up, these bad things seem to happen. Reeves reassures his young tenant that together they can resolve his problems. Mr. Reeves offers to tow Stephen's car and have the tires fixed. The bishop even hands Stephen the keys to his own van to use at his convenience. The bishop gave him the keys because his tires were slashed. He's looking out for him. But Reeves can't help being deeply concerned for his own safety as well as Stephen's. So he decides to take protective action. Mr. Reeves had an alarm system installed in the house. He shows Stephen how to input a four-digit code onto the number pad that will arm and disarm the system. He gives Stephen the opportunity to put in a separate code. So Stephen has a code, and then the bishop has his own separate code. The bishop hopes that this new measure will make Stephen feel more secure. But their peace of mind isn't destined to last. Late one day, Velma is returning from a friend's house when her cell phone rings. The 
voice says, I'm sorry about your tires. Velma rushes to check her car. She discovers that her own car tires have been slashed. There were no other tires slashed in that area, so it looks like it was very isolated that she was picked out. They obviously knew what her activities were and scared her. The idea of terrorizing somebody by telling them in advance what you're going to do to them is almost like torture. Like Stephen, Velma has gotten several strange calls in recent weeks. Neither Velma nor Stephen have any idea where these messages are coming from. This has to be a moment where Velma is questioning these, this, this, this friends and these, these benefits. These benefits ain't so good right now. A situation that started off aimed at Stephen is now spreading out to impact his friends. So Velma decides it's time to bring in the cops. She shared that recording with the Durham Police Department to determine whether they could see whose voice it was. By January 2008, Stephen's life is in a tailspin. On top of the recent stalking incident, now his financial worries have resurfaced. Stephen didn't come from a whole lot of resources. He doesn't have much money. Despite a job lead the bishop gave him in the fall, Stephen remains unemployed and financially strapped. And rent is due. The bishop is sympathetic to all Stephen is going through, but he still wants to be paid. The bishop asked Stephen, so Stephen, how are you, you going to pay this rent? It's dirt cheap, but you don't have any money. The bishop wants to help resolve the situation, but nothing will prepare Stephen for what the man of God will suggest as a solution. So the bishop ended up talking to Stephen about whether um, Stephen had engaged in homosexual behavior. Bishop went on to describe how when two men are having sex, as long as you close your eyes, you don't really know who you're having sex with. Just put a pillow over your face and you won't really know the difference. Put yourself back in, in, in the mind of Stephen. His, his mind really has, has to be turning. Before he can answer, the bishop offers to ease Stephen's financial burdens considerably in exchange for sexual favors. He says, now suppose you and I engage in oral sex because, well, the oral sex comes from a man or a woman. It's all the same, right, Stephen? The bishop says, hey, if we can do these acts, rent free. Stephen is shocked at the idea of prostituting himself to keep a roof over his head. The bishop is supposed to be the man of God. And yet, now the bishop is pursuing him sexually. This is a man of the cloth acting this way? It's exploitative. I know you have nowhere else to go. Stephen's going to feel like his back is against the wall. The bishop keeps talking, but Stephen has heard enough. Stephen says, I'm not going to take it there. I'm not interested in this kind of thing. But the bottom line is that Stephen still doesn't have a job, and his bills aren't going to disappear anytime soon. He's in a tough spot because he doesn't have any money, he doesn't really have a lot of alternatives. Unwilling to go back to living in his car, Stephen grudgingly decides he'll have to keep his room with a bishop, even if it means putting up with uncomfortable come-ons. 
but uncertain how far the bishop will push him for sexual favors, he opts for some extra protection. Stephen felt like he needed to be armed, and he went out and got a gun. He hid it in his bedroom so that he would be able to uh, feel safe in the house. And there's no telling what else Stephen will do to protect himself. In January 2008, life is swerving out of control for 22-year-old college senior Stephen. He's juggling secret relationships with two beautiful young women, Velma and Latrice. His landlord, a pastor who calls himself the bishop, is taking advantage of Stephen's financial problems by promising free rent in exchange for sexual favors. And a mysterious stalker is threatening Stephen, Velma, and the bishop. On January 29th, Stephen looks to forget his worries with the one person unconnected to them, Latrice. They haven't made love since the fall, and believing she's separated from her husband, Stephen invites her over for a second session. Latrice had told her husband that she was studying at the library at NC Central, that she was going to be a little bit late. But in fact, she was not at the library. She was with Stephen, and they were together at the bishop's home, and they had sex that night. They're clearly hot for each other. Lost in this moment of lust, Stephen feels he's left his problems far behind him until he realizes he may have just created a massive new one. Stephen was using a condom, and uh, during the course of intercourse, that uh, condom apparently um, came off of him. The mishap throws Stephen into a panic about his future. This basketball player with dreams and ambitions may have gotten this young woman pregnant. Becoming a father is the last thing on Stephen's mind, but Latrice has a very different reaction. She let Stephen know that she would like to take the relationship further. Pregnant or not, she sees a future for her and Stephen. It only takes that one time. We can be good friends, have great conversations, but then when you take that next step of sex, now that flood of emotions come. Whereas the guy maybe could take it or leave it and just another conquest, now she is, she's really head over heels. Latrice is more interested in Stephen than she is her marriage. And she is sort of inquiring, where is this relationship going? Is she to tell her husband that it's over with? But her lover doesn't share her enthusiasm. Stephen is thinking, man, she wants to basically leave her husband altogether and be with me. This thing is heating up a little bit too fast. Stephen's instincts tell him to run from his complicated relationship with Latrice. He has a lot of stress on his plate. He needs to figure out what his next step is. When Latrice leaves Stephen's place around 10 that evening, he turns to his longtime friend with benefits, Velma, for comfort. 
Stephen and Velma were close as friends because they both understood where they were in their respective lives. But he can't seem to forget what just happened with Latrice. She's on the phone several times with Stephen, of course, not knowing that Stephen is back at his girlfriend Velma's house. And Velma has no idea just how serious things with Stephen and Latrice have become. But whatever girlfriend drama Stephen has going on in his life are nothing compared to the real tragedy ahead. The next morning, January 30th, the sun has not yet risen, but traffic is already backing up on I-540. Passing motorists see something on the side of the road. The commuter alerts authorities to an eerie sight on the roadside. It was the kind of thing where you sort of view it from a distance and you think it probably can't be what it appears to be. Upon their arrival, deputies spot what looks like an abandoned vehicle, but a harrowing sight greets them as they get closer. They see this woman's body on the side of the road. This person had been stabbed 30 times, all about the chest and almost decapitated, stabbed in the stomach, just horribly murdered. Nobody knew how she got there or who she was. Investigators seal off the area and begin analyzing the crime scene, starting with the car. There was blood around the door area of the driver's side, which indicates some sort of confrontation inside the car. And the fact the body was dumped in such an exposed place gives police the impression the killer was disturbed. And that's why she was left so close to the road where people could see her. While most of the crime scene remains a mystery, one thing about the murder seems certain. The number and the extent of the wounds did not show a random attack. This is a crime of passion. Investigators have only just begun the process of identifying the victim when Darren, Latrice's husband, arrives at the scene. He's recognized the victim's car. He pulled over and um, told him who he was and wanted to go up there. However, as Darren approaches investigators, he catches sight of a body beneath a blue sheet. And he, he's like, please don't tell me that's my wife under that tarp. But when Darren shows them a picture, his worst fears are realized. As the identity of the victim is instantly confirmed, 21-year-old Latrice Curtis. As the victim's spouse, Darren is immediately under suspicion. He's one of them, the suspects that they had in the beginning, and they, they questioned him extensively. Darren would say he did get a call from her, and she said that she was on the way home from the library but was going to stop and get something to eat. According to Darren, that call was at 10 p.m., but she never arrived. When he woke up in the morning, he said she wasn't there, and he initially wasn't concerned, but then he did. He started to make his way toward work, and that's when he saw the blue tarp on the side of 540. Cops are puzzled why the husband wouldn't have called police first thing that morning, and with no witness to corroborate his story, 
Darren becomes the prime suspect in his wife's murder. The next day, the Wake County Sheriff's Office pours over Latrice's cell phone records to confirm Darren's story of the previous night. They were available online along with his, and it showed Darren did get a call from her. Now the police make a startling discovery. He starts to go through the cell phone records to see who Latrice had talked to late the night before, and he sees this same number over and over. The number isn't Darren's. They began tracing that number. As investigators race to identify the owner of the unknown cell phone, they have no idea he's about to walk through their doors first. It's the first day of February 2008, and investigators are hot on the trail of Latrice Curtis's murderer. 21-year-old Latrice was found stabbed to death on the side of the highway two days ago. And authorities think the key to solving the murder lies in her cell phone records. There's a particular number that Latrice had been calling on that previous evening. Investigators contact the service provider and learn the identity of the mysterious owner, a 22-year-old Durham College student named Stephen. But before they can find him, Stephen appears at the Wake County Sheriff's Office. Stephen comes in unannounced and just says, I want to tell you what I know about this girl. Law enforcement doesn't often get something that's just sort of handed to them like that. But he isn't alone. The bishop accompanied Stephen to be there in case there was anything Stephen would need. The bad feelings between Stephen and his preacher landlord appear to have been forgotten. And at this tragic moment, Stephen is grateful for his support. He's a preacher. This is what preachers do. While Stephen gives a statement, the bishop waits in the sheriff's office. Once in the interview room, detectives begin grilling Stephen about why Latrice was calling him the night she died. Stephen began saying, I know this young lady. I was with her on the 29th. Stephen did not admit that he had been involved with Latrice romantically. He sort of gives a background and we talked and we knew each other. But detectives suspect there's more to the relationship. And after several hours, Stephen finally caves. He's kind of like, okay, let me tell you the truth. This is what was going on. At a certain point, it comes out that Stephen did have a sexual relationship with Latrice and that he and Latrice, in fact, had sex on the very night that she was murdered. And it's concerned that he may have gotten this young lady pregnant. Stephen says he has nothing to do with Latrice's murder. And what's more, he has an alibi. He was over at Velma's house, but Latrice and Stephen were trading phone calls for, for some period of time. Latrice is, is telling Stephen that she wants to take the relationship further. Stephen is not 
as heartfelt about it. The condom incident appears to give Stephen a good reason to want Latrice out of his life. But could it have given him a motive to kill? Stephen claims he spoke with Latrice one more time while at Velma's house around 11. And that that was the last that he had talked to her. He hangs out over there pretty late, like 1, 1.30. And from there he comes back to his place, back to the bishop's place. But a new piece of evidence is about to cast serious doubt over his version of events. While Stephen is being questioned, a state trooper who was on Highway 540 the night of the murder arrives at the sheriff's office. I explained how I was on 540 at 1.30 on January 30th. Ran into a vehicle on the shoulders of the road with its flashers on. The door was unlocked. You could hear the chime of the keys in the ignition. And I got kind of a weird feeling at that point because it was unusual. Something just didn't feel right. I ran the tag on the vehicle to make sure it wasn't stolen. Even stranger, it doesn't appear to be the only disabled vehicle on this stretch of the highway. I did notice another car on the other side of the highway. And I was thinking that, hey, once I'm done with here, I'll go over there and check on that car. The trooper is called away on another job before he can look. However, he logs in the license plate number. And later, the tag request yields a fateful piece of information. My communications center came back to me. They told me it was a 2004 Chrysler Pacifica out of Durham registered to Robert Reeves. At that moment, the bishop is in the sheriff's office, so detectives bring him in to explain why his vehicle was spotted near a murder scene. He said, I don't know anything about that. I went to the church last night and that I came home around 11.30. But Reeves does have a theory as to why his car was there that night. And when he shares it, it will set investigators on the direct path to Latrice Curtis's brutal killer. Investigators are on the verge of discovering who killed 21-year-old college student Latrice Curtis on the shoulder of a North Carolina highway. They know that a van registered to Robert Reeves was across the road about the time she was murdered. The bishop claims he was at church on the night of the murder, but he admits it's possible that his vehicle was at the scene with someone else driving it. He says, Stephen had access to my car. Stephen was trying to get some work done to his car, and so he was borrowing the bishop's van a little bit. The facts are beginning to stack up against Stephen. His alibi is that he was with Velma, his longtime friend with benefits. So cops contact her for a statement. Stephen's whereabouts that night were accounted for by Velma. He was at Velma's house until sometime right before 1.30. Investigators' attention shifts to Velma. Could she have found out about Latrice's possible pregnancy? and flown into a jealous rage. But Velma is innocent and shares a threatening voicemail with investigators to show she's a victim as well. Velma said that she did not recognize the voice on the other end of the line. Velma shared the recording with Durham police when her tires were slashed, but they have yet to track down the caller. Now eager for possible leads in Latrice's murder, 
Wake County deputies are interested in finding him as well. They at that time received the re- a copy of the recording from Velma that she had kept. Police take the recording to Stephen to see if there might be a link. They play that back for for Stephen. And immediately Stephen says, that's the bishop. It was a complete shock. He didn't know that the bishop had been making those phone calls. Although investigators can't be 100% certain the voice on the message is the bishop's, a detailed analysis of phone records does tie him to the calls directed at Stephen. Although on those, he kept his identity hidden or roped in strangers to call under the pretense of a joke. The bishop actually had several cell phones, and one of them we called a fun phone because it was the one that he would use for homosexual behavior. The bishop's crank calls are deeply incriminating, so police start looking more closely at the man of the cloth. There was a conviction for a sexual offense in South Carolina involving a 17-year-old boy, and then he'd also been charged once, but not convicted for another sex crime. There were other sexual advances that were reported but never charged. Police checked the bishop's alibi that he was at church, but it doesn't hold water. Somebody at that church would have seen this, this man, but nobody saw him. The crank phone calls, Reeves' sinister past, and his inability to explain the presence of his vehicle at a murder scene provide cops with enough evidence to arrest Reeves. Velma is never a suspect in Latrice's murder. Both Stephen and Latrice's husband, Darren, are quickly eliminated as suspects. On September 5th, 2009, Robert Reeves stands trial for the murder of Latrice Curtis. The prosecution believes Latrice's fate was sealed back when Stephen moved in with a bishop. He was exploiting his status as a minister and bringing Stephen into his home so that he could get closer to him. He tried to convince Stephen that he could do certain things. You could get rent free here in exchange for sexual favors. When Stephen turned him down, the bishop began taking out his frustrations on the women in Stephen's life. The prosecution maintains that on the night of January 29th, 2008, after seeing Latrice leaving Stephen's basement room, the bishop snapped once and for all. He sees Latrice Curtis as a person that's keeping Stephen away from him. As a predator, he's going to do whatever he has to do to get to who he wants. He begins to follow her and follows her over into Wake County. Latrice's cell phone records show she speaks to her husband, Darren, around 10 and trades several phone calls with Stephen before 11. They believe sometime after that, Reeves gets her attention. They met each other on the shoulder of 540 eastbound where uh, Robert Reeves' vehicle was left. Recognizing the bishop, Latrice agrees and the two drive around for a while eventually pulling over at a shoulder across the highway from where Reeves left his car. They stopped on the side of 540 westbound. At that point, something obviously set him off. 
blind with sexual jealousy, Reeves pulls a knife and slits Latrice's throat. The wound is so deep, it nearly severs her vocal cords. But that doesn't begin to satisfy Reeves' raging bloodlust. He got out and dragged her out of the vehicle onto the shoulder of the road where he stabbed her 30 plus times. Once Reeves is finished, he hauls Latrice's body towards the woods to hide it. But the flashing lights of the state trooper checking his car on the other side of the highway scare him. He dropped her on the side of the road and ran. That's why she was left so close to the road where people could see her. Once the trooper is gone, Reeves returns to his car and drives home, not realizing that his license plate number has now been logged into the police database. But what really seals Reeves' fate is DNA evidence linking him directly to the crime scene. When Latrice's car was examined, the swab was taken from her steering wheel. Lab tests confirm the likelihood the DNA belongs to the bishop. On October 9th, 2009, 43-year-old Robert Reeves is found guilty of the murder of Latrice Curtis. Normally, we think about another woman getting so enraged on another woman. But in this situation, it was a case of a man who was so intent on having another man that he just took this person's life because he wanted what he wanted when he wanted it. Remember Latrice smiling, having fun? That's how I remember. I remember, that's why I think when I lay down, I think about all the good things, you know? The biggest question would be, why? Why did you go to this extreme? Because look, I'm trying to tell you, this man killed my daughter. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.